I'm Lister Sinclair, and this is Ideas. All this week, we celebrate the 60th anniversary of the CBC with a history of public broadcasting in Canada called the CBC in Question. The series was originally broadcast during the 50th anniversary in 1986. It has been revised and updated for this new broadcast. began with a kind of dream. The Canadian Radio Commission is calling Canada, calling their national network and associated networks in the United States. Boys of my age around Huron Street in Toronto were all were fascinated by the wireless and we tried, pretended that trying to talk through a hose was wireless. It was the idea of communication was, the taste for communication was in my, my being in some way. There was something in the age, worldwide communication. It was a fascinating time to be a young man. This is the first of five programs about public broadcasting in Canada. We'll highlight significant moments in the life of the CBC and try to see what these moments can tell us about the present and the future. Our story begins early in the century, when broadcasting itself was just beginning, a time when no one really knew what the new technological magic could or should do for society. The United States had a system of private commercial radio. American networks had affiliates and audiences in Canada. Britain had a publicly owned system. Canada was facing a choice. A royal commission in the late 1920s had recommended public ownership, but its report might have gone the way of many another royal commission report had it not been for the work of a small and dedicated band of visionaries who called themselves the Radio League. Tonight's programme by David Cayley is their story and the story of the invention they wanted used for the common good. Christmas Eve, 1906. Canadian inventor Reginald Aubrey Fessenden was making the first public radio broadcast. He played O Holy Night and read the Christmas story. Radio operators on United Fruit Company banana boats lying off Boston, amazed, heard Fessenden's broadcast and wrote to tell him so. Fessenden was a brilliant inventor, but a poor businessman. He eventually lost his patents to Marconi, and when North America's first radio station went on the air in Montreal, it was owned by the Italian, not the Canadian. That station was WXA, later CFCF, and its first regularly scheduled broadcast was on May 21, 1920. A glittering crowd gathered for the occasion in the Chateau Laurier. The Prime Minister, Sir Robert Borden, was there. So was Mackenzie King. And through the air, they heard, for the first time, music. WXA and the stations that followed it 
were not the slick commercial operations we know today. Radio still belonged to the amateur and the inventor, and the stations were usually small, low-power, local operations, like the one built in Wingham, Ontario, by Doc Cruikshank. One tube was all I had in this transmitter. There was no receivers available, so I had to make them if I was going to sell them. I worked in the foundry for 10 hours a day, seven days a week, by the way, and I run the machine in the picture show for about four hours a night. And there was one hour between seven and eight o'clock that I had nothing to do. That's when I sold radios. The first broadcast we ever did was a fellow playing an accordion. Then on Sunday, we all did a church service from one of the churches. It's, it meant at that time we had to connect up all the churches in town uh, with a telephone line, you see. And we had the telephone line. We bought a great lot of wire and strung it on top of buildings and everything else from the studio over to one of the churches and broadcast. The, we did that for years before anybody thought there was any other way of doing it. We didn't know that you had to have a license uh, for broadcasting. Somebody tipped me off that I had to have a license, and by golly, I found inquired around, and sure enough, I had to have a license. It was very simple to get it. All I did was write a letter, and I, I could get a license for $10, I think, in those days. Stations were often started as a way of selling radio sets, primitive affairs involving crystals and an antenna called a cat's whisker. That was why A.A. Murphy started his station, the first in Saskatoon. About 1922, I think it was, the latter part of the year, some red-headed fellow from eastern Canada took a swing through the west and he came into our place of business and loaded us up with a lot of cat whiskers and horns and whatnot. And uh, my partner bought all this stuff, and when I came in, he told me about it, and I said, well, uh, what are we going to do with it? I guess we'll have to have a radio station if we're going to sell that kind of stuff. I said, there was a station in Regina at that time, but it wasn't very powerful. That is, CKCK was in operation then. So uh, I took a trip to Calgary, saw Bill Grant, made a deal with him, and he built me a 50-watt station, and so to speak, brought it up under his arm to Saskatoon. Radio, at first, was a toy. Receivers were often homemade. Reception was extraordinary because the radio spectrum was still uncluttered. A Regina station with only 500 watts of power was heard regularly in Ontario and in British Columbia, occasionally as far away as Australia. The miracle of receiving radio signals at all redeemed even the most banal of programs. But by the mid-1920s, things had begun to change. The rapidly expanding American networks had begun reaching into Canada, and a lot of Canadians were entranced by what they heard. And now, CBS Radio brings you Ma Perkins. Senator's home. I'll knock and see what happens. Somebody, I say, somebody knock. Yes, I knock. Claghorn's the name. Senator Claghorn, that is. I know you're from the South. When I'm in New York, I'll never go to the Yankee Stadium. Now, wait a minute. I won't even go to 
to see the Giants unless the South Pole's pitching. Well, look. I refuse to watch the Dodgers. Andy, listen, the man is just about to say it. Yeah, let's everybody listen. Rinso, the new Rinso with Solium brings you the Amos and Andy Show. Rinso, the soap that contains solium, the sunlight ingredient, brings you a full half hour of entertainment with the Jubilaires, Jeff Alexander's orchestra and chorus, and radio's all-time favorites, Amos and Andy. A program such as Amos and Andy was enormously popular. Broadcasting historian Michael Nolan. And so you had stations like CFCF in Montreal, CKGW in Toronto, being pushed tremendously by listeners to get these programs onto their stations. Uh, so you had uh, owners like R.W. Ashcroft of CKGW having to make a decision. Either you affiliate with an American network on a limited basis and bring in the program on your station, or you run the risk of a Canadian turning to an American station and being held to that American station. Canadian networks were slower to develop. The first program heard nationally was on Dominion Day in 1927. The occasion was Canada's Diamond Jubilee, and a network of stations established by the Canadian National Railways carried the festivities live from Parliament Hill. It began with a carillon recital. Engineer Jack Carlyle was part of the recording team. I remember going up in the tower and the clock struck and I moved just when I got near the bells. And uh, of course, there's carbon mics in those days. And uh, you couldn't put it on the ground and pick up the sound. So Charlie Finley, the chief engineer, he climbed out on one of the gargoyles. You know the gargoyles on the clock in the Peace Tower? Yes. He climbed out and sat on there for an hour with a microphone in his hand. He was never allowed to do it again, of course. Later in the day, Mackenzie King addressed the crowd. Graham Spry recalls how impressed the Prime Minister was with the national radio hookup. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, on behalf of all of us who are residents in the capital of Ottawa, may I say what a great pleasure it is to welcome to the city today on this historic occasion. I remember the day very vividly. The whole of Parliament Hill was crowded with people, and they were interested, fascinated by this uh, national hookup. Here were the Governor-General, a great actress, and the Prime Minister of Canada, standing in Ottawa and speaking to everybody in Canada who had a radio and who wanted to listen. Now, this made an enormous impression on the press uh, and, uh, of course, on the politicians, and particularly on Mackenzie King. You have very, very remarkable statement by Mackenzie King of the impression that program made on him. Uh, words like, uh, for one brief hour, the whole Canadian people's hearts beat as one, or, or something of that order. The surviving sons and daughters of the Fathers of Confederation. Also, we welcome very cordially the representatives... It is doubtful, Mackenzie King later said about this Dominion Day broadcast, if those in authority were ever before brought into such immediate and sympathetic personal touch with those from whom their authority derived. All of Canada became a single assemblage, swayed by a common emotion, 
As a result of this, King went on, there will be aroused a more general interest in public affairs and an increased devotion of the individual citizen to the common weal. King had already been favorably impressed by a visit to the BBC in 1926, but with characteristic caution, it was not until 1928 that he finally set up a royal commission on broadcasting. What finally impelled him into action was the controversy over religious broadcasting. Stations operated by the Jehovah's Witnesses had been accused of scurrilous attacks on other religious groups, notably the Roman Catholics, who were called, in one broadcast, Judases and Polecats. The government responded by shutting down their stations. The opposition protested that this was an arbitrary decision, and it called for a comprehensive inquiry. The government countered with the Aired Royal Commission and asked it to recommend whether radio in Canada should be in private, provincial, or federal ownership. Its members were Charles Bowman, editor of the Ottawa Citizen, Augustin Frigon, a Montreal engineer, and Sir John Aird, president of the Bank of Commerce. Bowman was a friend of King's. He had accompanied him during his visit to the BBC and an enthusiastic supporter of public broadcasting on the BBC model. Frigon and Aird were predisposed on ideological grounds to private ownership, but circumstances, according to broadcasting historian Frank Pierce, changed their minds. I think Aird's ideas changed a bit because he went to New York to talk to NBC and found that NBC thought that they could provide the Canadians with the best broadcasting system that they could possibly have. And Aird's sympathies, as with many establishment figures at that time, were with the British Connection. Uh, he also had some notion of public service, and um, he thought that an American-dominated uh, system would never provide that, and he thought that advertising revenues would not be sufficient to allow private stations to provide truly national service. Was this actually a visit of the Commission to NBC? The Commission went down to uh, New York. They went to, I believe, to Washington. They went to London and... Uh, some other European capitals. In uh, London, Aird uh, met Lord Reith, the head of the BBC, and the two men got along famously. Reith was not known as being always a diplomat, but in, in this instance, he and uh, Aird must have had enough in common. And uh, again, Aird's notion that it wasn't the American system that would serve Canada was strengthened by his discussions with Lord Reith. In September of the following year, just two months before the stock market crashed, the Aird Commission submitted a 29-page report to the government. Decisive and concise, said the Ottawa correspondent for Saturday night. The Commission concluded that Canadian listeners were not getting enough Canadian radio, and it urged the government to establish a national network of publicly owned stations. It preferred public ownership, partly because it wanted to preserve a certain tone in Canadian life. Aird himself didn't even own a radio. He'd had one once, he confessed to an acquaintance, but he threw the damn thing out. The commissioners feared the vulgarity of private radio. Dr. Frigon found the advertising tasteless, and they called in their report for the exclusive use of announcers with cultivated voices. But whatever its concerns, the commission's report couldn't have been released at a worse time. Two months later, the stock market crashed, and within a year the government changed, 
and Mackenzie King's liberals gave way to R.B. Bennett's conservatives. At that point, the Aird report could easily have been shelved had it not been for the formation of the Radio League. It happened on October 6, 1930, at the Ottawa home of Alan Plant. Graham Spry was there. They had just concluded a meeting of the Canadian Institute for International Affairs. At the end of it, we stayed to have a drink, three or four of us. Tom Moore, president of the Trades and Labour Congress of Canada. Margaret Southam, a daughter of Wilson Southam, one of the two owners of well, the Southams who owned the Southam Press. There were three or four of us stayed around, and I suggested that it was going to be a quiet winter in the middle of the Depression. Perhaps we could take up the subject of broadcasting. We have the aired report. There's great public interest. The thing is to direct the public opinion to the aired report and make that an issue. Out of this determination grew the Radio League. Its core members were Alan Plant and Graham Spry. Plant was the son of an Ottawa lumber millionaire. He was newly returned from Oxford and ready to commit himself to a cause. Spry was a native of Toronto. Educated at the University of Manitoba and Oxford, he was the National Secretary of the Association of Canadian Clubs. Both men subscribed to a current of opinion which broadcasting historian Michael Nolan calls cultural nationalism. They wanted to see Canada assert its cultural existence in the same way it had exerted its political existence in the 1920s. I think there was a, an intellectual group in the, in the country uh, who wanted to see Canada become something more than simply diplomatically and constitutionally independent, but also culturally independent. And the cultural nationalists, and I would say there were only a handful of them in the country at the time, who were thinking along those lines. Plot, I'd say, was in the vanguard. He honestly felt, and some other people, that we should be asserting ourselves more culturally. And what could be a better way to do it than to have a distinctive public broadcasting system and try to show how you were a, a distinctive country with a distinctive identity separate and apart from the United States by having your own broadcasting system. The lobby that Plant and Spry and their friends mounted through the Radio League in favor of a publicly owned system was somewhere between a movement and a conspiracy. They were able to call on widespread public support for the idea, but they also exploited their establishment connections. Spry had formed an extensive network of such connections through his work for the Association of Canadian Clubs, and he also had the advantage of a family acquaintance with the Prime Minister, R.B. Bennett. Bennett's principal secretary, Rod Finlayson, was an old school friend. And Spry's work as well often brought him in contact with W.D. Herridge, another member of Bennett's inner circle. Bill Herridge had moved on from the Liberals into the Conservative Party, married R.B. Bennett's sister, become Canadian ambassador in Washington, and the intimate advisor of the Prime Minister. And as here, here he'd been working with us for three or four years and quite other things. It was a very simple matter to get him interested in the League. And he was a, a channel that we could use always. One of my little tricks was to... Um, uh, he would come up from Washington 
by train in those days. And uh, I would discover as he was in town, I'd want to have a chat with him, to lobby him. And I would jump on the train to Montreal and sit down with him. So I would be able to get in a half hour, an hour, a whole afternoon, two or three hours conversation with him. Graham Spry was a member of the Rideau Club, a frequent haunt of the Prime Minister in his cabinet. The club was on Wellington Street, across from Bennett's office in the east block of the Parliament buildings. Spry used it as a vantage point to keep track of the Prime Minister's movements. About once a week, midweek, he would go down for some sort of a massage or hot treatment. And we, we used to watch that and then get around into the shadow ahead of him, watch which stairs he was going down, and then come up the stairs he was going down. And if he was in any way receptive at all, why we would put some point to him. One of the points in the Radio League's favor was the fact that Britain had already opted for a publicly owned broadcasting system. By the early 1930s, the BBC, under the leadership of Sir John Reith, was a well-established and successful organization. Bennett's Tories stood four square for the British connection, and this made the BBC a persuasive example which Spry could hold up to the Prime Minister. Sir John Reith, Lord Reith later, was in New York, and I saw this. So I watched Dr. Larby. Bennett came out of the little door in the East Block, and when he came into the Reader Club, I nodded to him, and he was quite friendly. So I said, I've just been noticing that Sir John Reith is in New York. Could I suggest that it might be useful to the government to have him come up here for consultation? I said, in fact, I've taken the liberty of drafting a telegram for you. His head went down. I thought he was going to snort like a bull. This wasn't anger. He didn't mind this sort of approach. But he put his head down. I may look at Graham, but I'm not. (laughs) Don't take me for any mug. R.B. Bennett largely accepted the case for public broadcasting, but his cabinet was divided on the issue. The Canadian Pacific Railways, for example, was interested in developing its own national radio network, and its influence within the Conservative Party was considerable. Bennett called on Spry to rally political support. Uh, I was having dinner for an eminent English imperialist with whom I did not agree, Lionel Curtis, who was traveling around the empire, as uh, one did, and a very fine human being he was, a devoted public servant. And there were five or six others. I remember Norman Robertson was there, and almost certainly Alan Plant, in a private room at the Rideau Club, and the man at the desk came in and said, you're wanted immediately at the telephone. I think it's the Prime Minister, a sort of horror. So I went and... Indeed, it was the Prime Minister, Mr. Bennett. Bennett had called because some of the Westerners in his cabinet had questioned the extent of political support for public broadcasting in the West. Could Spry do something to satisfy them? I said, well, certainly I will leave tonight. Those were the days of trains. I turned the dinner over to Norman Robertson, telegraphed to Premier Brownlee in Alberta, whom I knew quite well, I didn't know the Premier of Saskatchewan, but I knew uh, the Attorney General, 
through the Canadian clubs. And, of course, Premier Bracken in Manitoba, and I, one of my first political activities was the United Farmers of Manitoba and then their campaign, which carried them into office. Once again, Spry's connections carried the day. He returned to Ottawa triumphant, with resolutions in support of public broadcasting from the legislatures of Manitoba and Alberta and the cabinet of Saskatchewan. How deep this popular support actually ran has often been debated by historians. Michael Nolan, for example, believes that what tipped the balance in favor of public broadcasting was not a popular groundswell, but the support of newspaper publishers for the idea. There is just no question in my mind that the reason we got public broadcasting in this country was out of crude self-interest on the part of a number of groups, most important of which was the newspaper lobby. The newspaper lobby clearly saw private radio as an outright threat <laughs> to their advertising revenue. And I think Alan Plant and Graham Spry, as lobbyists, did a masterful job of capitalizing on the newspaper disenchantment and the threat that this posed to the economic established interests. But I think it's wrong for the Canadian people to feel that we got public broadcasting because of an enormous groundswell of cultural feeling in this country. I don't think we did at all. I think the reason we got it was largely economics. Clearly, the newspapers did play a major role. But there's strong evidence that public broadcasting was also a politically popular cause. Graham Spry recalls a meeting held just two months after the Radio League was formed. On December the 8th, we had a ballroom in the Chateau Laurier, not the biggest, but one of the large rooms, with several hundred people. And we adopted all sorts of resolutions about national broadcasting. And at that meeting, there was practically every organization that had national offices in Ottawa, or, or, uh, or if you like, Montreal and Toronto. It was a highly representative organization. We were able to issue a pamphlet about that time, which I could show you. And we had, uh, uh, I suppose, 200 of the leading names in Canadian public life, ranging from the United Farmers of Saskatchewan and uh, the Trades and Labour Congress of Canada. The whole of the labour simply rallied behind us. Uh, the whole of the farmers, all the churches, the Cardinal Archbishop of Quebec. I went to see him and kissed his ring, and we had the support of the Catholic Church. There was a very profound movement of opinion. On May 16, 1932, R.B. Bennett introduced a bill creating the Canadian Radio Broadcasting Commission. The country, he told the House, must be assured of complete Canadian control of broadcasting, free from foreign interference or influence. Without such control, he went on, radio would never become a great agency for the diffusion of national thought and ideals or for the strengthening of national unity. Graham Spry and Alan Plant couldn't have said it better. Unfortunately, the Canadian Radio Broadcasting Commission, 
or CRBC, was something else again. What the League had wanted was something like the BBC, an independent crown corporation with its own board of directors. What it got was virtually a department of the government. The Commission had problems from the beginning. One of them was the unhappiness of the private stations. They stirred up the hostility of um, many of the private station operators when they tried to bring them into line in one way or another, make, make rules that would be uniformly applied across the country. The private stations had not been used to any kind of supervision of this kind and resented it hotly and complained, of course, to their local members of parliament who would raise all these complaints in the House of Commons and um, the single House of Commons committee that reviewed the CRBC's work in 1934 was very hostile. A second and even greater problem was shortage of funds. The assumption under which the act had been passed was that they would be granted um, the proceeds from a $3 license fee paid by every household that had a radio. In fact, the, the amount was established at $2, clearly inadequate even in the period of the Depression. They were not allowed to accept advertising on their network so that they, they just didn't have enough money. And they had no um, provisions for raising capital to establish the kind of big regional stations that they were expected to uh, work through. So they used, all sorts, they used all sorts of dodges, buying old equipment from certain private broadcasters and so forth to get uh, stations on the air. Otherwise, they had to rely on the goodwill, in effect, of the uh, private stations or their regulatory power to get their programs heard across the country. With the formation of the CRBC, the Radio League went into hibernation. Plant and Spry bought a rural newspaper called the Weekly Sun, once the organ of the United Farmers of Ontario. Spry became active in the CCF, and Plant got involved with an agrarian youth movement. The New Canada movement was a sort of traveling folk school for young Ontario farmers. It began in Gray and Bruce counties in the winter of 1933 and swept through the counties along the shores of Lake Huron and Lake Erie, setting up study groups and gathering recruits as it went. Plant was one of the inspirations of the movement, and he made a powerful impression on the people he met. He had a, an uncanny knack for getting people involved. He was a very disarming personality. Great sense of humor. I had, met, had many a laugh. I was also involved with him in the old Weekly Sun that he and Spray But In fact, I wrote a column for it too, under the nom de plume of the landsman. He made a very great impression on me. Orville Shug, who would later set up CBC Farm Broadcasting, was a farmer at Watford, Ontario. And through the New Canada movement, he became friends with Alan Plant. I've... Uh, been greatly intrigued by this, the friendship that, sprang, that uh, sprang up between Plant and I. Plant, the millionaire's son from Ottawa, and Shug, the farmer's son from southwestern Ontario. Uh, he was one of the world's worst drivers, and yet when he lived in Toronto, he'd get in his car and drive down to our farm for a weekend, 175-mile trip, and thoroughly enjoyed it. And it was actually in those days, in the mid-1930s, when I first knew Plant, that I first heard of his interest 
interest in his plans for public loan broadcasting. Plant didn't know it at the time that he first met Orville Shug, but he would soon get a second chance to realize these plans. His involvement with the New Canada movement had expanded his vision of what public broadcasting could do for the country. Orville Shug would later realize some of this expanded vision through the CBC's farm broadcasts. And so, when the chance came, Plant was ready. It happened during the federal election campaign of 1935, when the CRBC suddenly and unexpectedly blew itself up. The Commission had broadcast a series of programs produced on behalf of the Conservative Party, but not identified as such. They involved a cracker-barrel philosopher called Mr. Sage. In the course of the broadcasts, Mr. Sage made a number of derogatory remarks about the leader of the opposition, Mr. Mackenzie King. Ernest Bushnell was then the CRBC's director of programs. Mr. Sage, actually, was a 15-minute sketch uh, it was sponsored by, really they didn't admit it, but it was written by someone in the J.J. Gibbons Advertising Agency, who was a, known as a conservative agency. Several actors took part in it, Stanley Maxted, Rupert Lucas, some of our own staff. Uh, we thought it was rather good fun. Didn't uh, realize the political implications of it, but uh, after it was uh, broadcast... All hell broke loose. King was furious that uh, these these four or five broadcasts went ahead, and he vowed that if he got back into power, the regulatory agency that allowed this disgraceful exhibition on the air would be uh, decapitated, and that's what he did. Within weeks of the Mr. Sage broadcasts, King was prime minister again. The CRBC was finished, and the Radio League saw a golden opportunity to get the kind of legislation it wanted. Spry was now publicly associated with the CCF, so he laid low and worked behind the scenes. Plant took stage center and worked tirelessly among the Liberals. The relationship which Spry had had to Bennett in 32, Plant now had to King. There's uh, one notable interview that that uh, Plant had with Mackenzie King in which he really put the radio case before him. This is Michael Nolan, who has just published a book on Plant's career called Foundations. And I think King was impressed with Plant, too. He saw him as... Uh, he was young. He was energetic. I should say, too, the Plant family was reasonably well-known in Ottawa. Mackenzie King would certainly know the background, the, uh, the English-French roots, and so on. So Plant stepped in and... Uh, tenaciously worked in that period from mid-1935 to 36. Uh, he was like a man driven with not much time, and uh, his cancer had not been identified at that time from which he died. That was, that was three years later. But you, you get the feeling when you go through some of the correspondence that, that he was, the clock was ticking and that he was really driven by this. And his uh, sisters remembered that period fairly well where he was working at an almost feverish pace. The new Broadcasting Act was introduced into the House of Commons on June 15, 1936. Its basis was a detailed memorandum which Alan Plant had submitted to the government the year before. Brooke Claxton, also a Radio League member, drafted the actual bill and later said it contained 90% of what the League had wanted. An independent board, assured funding, a strong general manager, 
and regulatory control of private broadcasting. Alan Plant was appointed to the new board. Its chairman was Leonard Brockington, and it was Brockington who inaugurated the new service on November 2, 1936. Good evening. I am speaking to you as chairman of a board of governors of a corporation of which you are at once the shareholders, the debenture holders, and the patrons. I refer, of course, to the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, which at midnight on Sunday last succeeded the Canadian Radio Broadcasting Commission in the control of national radio as a Canadian public service. We hope that men in lonely places will be able to tell us of their adventures, that the man in the ditch, the western farmer on the prairie, the fisherman, the fur trader, rich and poor, great and small, Canadian men and Canadian women will share with their fellow citizens the perennial marvel of the human interest of their struggles and their achievements. One word of reassurance and my invasion of your time is ended. Please do not think, because some of the directors of this corporation are university professors and some are labelled highbrows, that you are going to be harangued over your radio as though you were children. The merry heart is the one that goes the furthest, and the truest education of all can well come from delight in the wonders of the world around us. Brock was a great orator and a devoted Canadian, uh, but he came to radio with no knowledge at all. Uh, 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 he hadn't studied the issue, the political problem, and he was educated by Alan Plant. I would think he, that Alan solely was responsible for his education and for almost everything he initially did when he became president of CBC. The first order of business for the board was to establish a chain of high-powered regional transmitters, and that involved it in a running battle with the minister responsible for the CBC, C.D. Howe. By 1938, the Quebec and Ontario stations had gone ahead, but Howe was dragging his feet in approving a 50,000-watt transmitter for the prairies. According to Graham Spry, the matter came to a head when Howe ordered the board to increase the power of a private station on the prairies. The board decided that they would arrange an interview, and they did, with Mr. Howe. Brockington phoned him, and it was arranged for 9 o'clock the next morning. And the whole board went to C.D. Howe's office, and Mr. Howe, Mr. Howe was told by Brockington that they had considered their oath, considered the act, they had taken legal advice, and with the greatest respect, they would advise the minister that they had not the power to obey his instructions, and he had not the power to give them. And uh, Howe said, well, I am the minister, you read the act, I am the responsible minister, and I will have to stand by my instructions. And according to the legend, there's nothing writing in writing that I know of support this, but it's the story of the time. Mr. Brockington then said, well, well, Mr. Minister, that being the case, we will simply uh, hand you the resignations which we brought with us and resign as a complete board. And again, according to the, the story, 
C.D. Howell, being the man he was, threw up his hands in a very agreeable, smiling manner and said, Okay, Brock, you win. <laughs> a year later, CBK went on the air from Watrous, Saskatchewan, with two people talking at once. Tonight, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation officially opens and dedicates to the service of the Canadian listening public its new 50,000-watt Prairie Regional Station, CBK. I'm speaking from CBK's new modern transmitter building, which stands a new landmark in the center of Canada's famed wheat-growing country. The great vertical antenna reaches 460 feet into the sky. While the board was wresting its independence from a reluctant government, the programmers were debating issues which still sound familiar today. Ernie Bushnell was then the network program director. People were listening to these American programs, and I remember discussing this uh, very thoroughly with Mr. Murray and indeed with the whole board of governors. If these people were listening to some of these, if our Canadian audience, on a national basis, were listening to these American programs, why not import at least a few of them and interlard them, as it were, with good Canadian programs so that you had a sure, it was probably the American shows that, that uh, uh, attracted the audience in the first place, but they stuck with us. If you put a good show back-to-back with an American show, you had an audience. They didn't remain, as a matter of fact, with the American network. And it built up the audience tremendously. Canadian programs were being produced, too, a lot of them, by very few people. James Findlay, who had worked for the CRBC in Montreal, started with the CBC in Vancouver. You were responsible for all of the music, all of the drama, and all of the talks, and everything else that went in. There was one other chap, Mercer McLeod, who was at the station, and between the two of us, we produced all the programs, all of the programs. As a job of a producer, it was my job to, to set up the chairs for the orchestra, put up the microphones, and during rehearsals, waltz the microphones around until I achieved a good pickup. I finished up in 1940, and I was producing three half-hour dramas and 11 musical shows per week. That was my production. That's why I worked 90 hours a week. The staff of the CBC was small in those early years, but they shared, James Finley said, a sense of camaraderie and of mission. One of their early triumphs came during the royal tour of 1939. It was the first visit of a reigning monarch to Canada, and with the undivided attention of the country, the corporation went all out. Three years before, a hundred people had been nearly the entire staff of the CBC. Now it needed that many just for the tour. A marathon of six grueling weeks, 7,000 miles, and 91 broadcasts. Evidently the king and the queen are just about to come out the side of the ship. The officer is saluting... 
at the side of the vessel, just where the gangway opens into the body of the ship. The photographers are poised here. The Prime Minister and Mr. LaPointe remove their cocked hats. Here comes the King down the gangway, followed by the Queen. The King saluting the Prime Minister. His foot is on Canadian soil, and the royal tour has begun. There goes the first gun of the salute from Citadel Hill. The royal standard has just broken out from above us here, signifying the king's visit. The king and the queen, the prime minister, followed by the minister of justice, Mr. DePointe, are walking up toward the royal stand here. And from above us, between the mastheads of the Empress of Australia, have broken out many colored flags that have just gone up very colorfully. The Royal Salute is coming not only from the 57th Field Battery on the Citadel, but also from these four warships out in the stream here. The two destroyers, the Skeena, the Saguenay, and the two cruisers from England to Southampton and the Glasgow, all firing this Royal Salute. The Royal Visit in the summer of 1939 came on the eve of the outbreak of war. By the fall, the CBC was forced to turn its attention to the grimmer scenes that were unfolding in Europe. I am speaking to you from the cabinet room at 10 Downing Street. This morning, the British ambassador in Berlin handed the German government a final note, stating that unless we heard from them by 11 o'clock, that they were prepared at once to withdraw their troops from Poland, a state of war would exist between us. I have to tell you now that no such undertaking has been received and that consequently this country is at war with Germany. Canada calls. The approach and the outbreak of war raised new questions about the independence of the CBC and drove a wedge between the general manager, Gladstone Murray, and Alan Plant, still the dominant figure on the board. Murray was a British Columbian, a legendary flyer during the First World War and later the public relations director for the BBC. Plant had been largely responsible for bringing him to Canada in 1936, and for a while Murray's public relations skills and good program sense had seemed to justify Plant's judgment. But now, says Michael Nolan, they were more and more at odds. Their views on the war were quite different. Plant was on the side of American neutrality. Murray was certainly much more imperialist in his views. The, the real crux of the issue was that there was a feeling on Plant's part that Murray was working too closely with the government in terms of the role of the CBC in wartime. Plant, steadfastly to his death, said that, look, even in wartime, we're going to have to watch the independence of the CBC. So then you get to the point of who's going to be on public affairs programs and so on. And there's no doubt about it, People like Plant clearly felt all points of view have to be aired on the CBC, and that certainly included the CCF. 
And there was, on that score, I think, a certain tension between Murray and Plant. Plant, as Michael Nolan says, was a neutralist. Like other intellectuals of the time, Frank Underhill say, or Frank Scott, he feared that war might tear Canada apart again, as the conscription crisis had done during the First World War. And he disliked the change of tone on the CBC as war approached. Early in 1939, he wrote to Murray about the special New Year's program the CBC had just broadcast. As a combination of banality, bad taste, cheap sentimentality, and jingoism, he wrote, this program would be hard to beat. An American listener, he continued, would get the impression that we were a bunch of mawkish and sentimental imperialist half-wits with no independence or identity of our own. Murray rejected Plant's fears about what another European war would do to Canada. As war approached, he visited England to confer with Lord Perth, the head of propaganda for the British government. He became involved with Sir William Stevenson, now famous by the codename Intrepid, and he advised the government on questions of people's loyalty. And when the outbreak of war brought censorship to the CBC, he shrugged off its impact, as in this network broadcast in 1941. While the demands of war are paramount, there is no prospect that the fulfillment of these requirements will damage the worthwhile distinctive tradition which Canadian broadcasting was evolving before this war. Now, propaganda as a term is always suspect, and rightly so, because it is the stock in trade of Goebbels' lie factory. As I see it, our task is simply to tell the truth, to make it luminous and attractive, and to repeat it, and to go on repeating it until the lies and vain boastings of the enemy have dissolved as the morning mist before the penetrating and wholesome rays of the rising sun. Alan Plant didn't share Murray's view that war had suddenly turned the world black and white, and the conflict between them escalated. Murray increasingly viewed Plant as part of what he explicitly called a left-wing conspiracy. He used the outbreak of war as an excuse to circumvent the CBC board and begin reporting directly to his minister, C.D. Howe. Otherwise, he told the parliamentary committee which later investigated his actions, there might have been a danger of sabotage or fifth-column activity. It took the intervention of the prime minister to reassert the primacy of the board. Plant, for his part, became increasingly vitriolic about Murray. Murray, he wrote, is incapable unscrupulous, two-faced, capricious. He is also, Plant went on, alluding to a problem he had formerly tried to minimize, a pathological drunk, more fit for a pathological ward than the direction of a great public utility. When Plant was unsuccessful in his attempt to have Murray fired, he resigned himself in October of 1940. Within three months, Murray was gone as well. By the time of his resignation, Plant was already mortally ill with cancer. He died the following year, still a young man, his wife expecting a baby. In his eyes, the future of the corporation he had worked so hard to create was clouded. But although the CBC did inevitably grow closer to the government in wartime, Michael Nolan thinks that it was Plant's vision that ultimately prevailed. I think the independence that the CBC eventually got certainly is, a, is in large part attributable to Plant and the kind of model he set up. I suppose you could say, and, and you see this 
you know, in, in subsequent royal commissions, the Massey Commission, Plant's thinking flows right through most of the subsequent broadcasting studies that followed his death. I think the great thing Plant did for the CBC was to stimulate creativity and debate within it and to try to uh, create a, a liveliness and um, an intellectual spirit. And I think uh, it was Leonard Brockington who said that, that he died with his best ideas unrealized but not uncommunicated. And I think that's the point, that he communicated to others the vision he had for the CBC. Tonight on Ideas, the first program in our five-part series, The CBC in Question. The series, which honours the 60th anniversary of the CBC, continues tomorrow night with a show about the golden age of radio. Tonight's programme was a revised version of a programme originally presented in 1986 as part of a series called Turning Points in Public Broadcasting. Technical Operations, Lorne Tulk. Production Assistants, Gail Brownell, Laurie Clayton and Liz Nodge. Archival Research, Ken Pewley. You can get a printed transcript of tonight's Ideas programme. It costs $7 plus GST. Or you can get the whole series of five programmes for $25 plus GST. Just send a cheque or money order to Ideas Transcripts, Box 500, Station A, Toronto M5W1E6. Or you can contact us by email at ideastran, that's I-D-E-A-S-T-R-A-N, at toronto.cbc.ca. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht, and I'm Lister Sinclair. And stay tuned now for the CBC News, followed by Between the Covers. <laughs>